The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We absolutely support Israel's right to defend itself in line with international law. We need to safeguard financial stability. 2024 is not going to be an easy year. We used to call it the dream of home ownership. But look at Britain now. We've got to hang on to optimism and hope because it is the biggest driver of change. Let's stop thinking of life in terms of Brexit. Let's move on and look for the future. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. At risk of turning this show into Sesame Street, I feel like we have another numbers theme that's going to be <laughs> happening here. The rule of threes when it comes to policy announcements. Tony Blair once said his top three priorities were education, education, education. For the Conservatives, it now seems to be migration, migration, migration. The issue hasn't come out of the blue, but take a listen to some of the most well-known politicians of recent history talking about it. Yes, we must help refugees in the region and in neighbouring countries, and we do that. But you also need strong borders and a means to return those who attempt the dangerous crossing. Let's take back control of our country, take back control of our borders, put in place an Australian-style point system to control immigration, and take on the big corporate giants who've driven down salaries and made life so difficult for our five million small businesses. It's only UKIP that is prepared to talk straight. We cannot talk about immigration as something separate from its social and economic context. It's clear from the conversations that I and many others had on streets around the country in recent weeks that immigration is a crucial issue for a lot of people and played a central role in the EU referendum campaign. The clear message from the referendum is this. We must control immigration. Did you hear Mr Corbyn last week telling us there's no need for any limit on numbers? Have you ever heard of a political party quite so out of touch with its own voters? Let's be clear. We will control our borders and we will bring the numbers down. If necessary, I am prepared to revisit our domestic legal frameworks. Let me assure the House my commitment to stopping the boats is unwavering. So, did you get get all those? Starting with David Cameron, yes. Then who? Nigel Farage, Uh Jeremy Corbyn. David Davis and Rishi Sunak finishing off there from the press conference yesterday, telling us, look, this is not a new issue that politicians are discussing. Of course, it's back in the news as we've been reporting all week on the show. Um, But particularly since the resignation of Robert Jenrick, the immigration minister, that press conference we talked about Mm. yesterday from the prime minister to it's the issue that just seems to not go away, particularly for the Conservative Party over the past 11 years? Yes, I think it's an issue though that is also um, at the fore across all of Europe actually because, you know, in economic hard times it also can become an issue. It's also an issue because of the ONS data up to June net migration into the UK 672,000, obviously that got lots of headlines in the newspapers I still think there's a huge sort of conflation and confusion about legal and so-called illegal migration in the UK, even though now the Conservatives do have two separate ministers for that those portfolios. And will that help 
the mm. government to unpick the very complex subject, the policy challenges around this as well, and how they create a coherent policy that the party can get on board with. Our colleagues writing today about how these are the Brexit fault lines again, re-emerging over the issue of migration. Yeah, and uh, you know, can the numbers be brought down? As you know, the, the thrust and is of that those, the way we should be thinking about exactly it? Exactly, because you know, the, sometimes people think about the Brexit argument having been lost on the economics. Well, the migration argument again is one of the economy. We need more workers, but you know, are we at risk of of, of that also being an issue now? And look, it's a big question of politics too. Let's get more analysis then on this issue now. Joining us is Jonathan Portis, who is Professor of Economics at King's College London and a Senior Fellow at the UK in a Changing Europe. Jonathan, welcome back to the programme. Good to speak to you. Um, You've talked a a lot about migration data. You've talked about the latest ONS figures on net migration. And you've talked about it being a good news story for Britain. This very much counter to the Conservative Party view right now, perhaps even counter to what voters might think. Why is it such a good news story in your view? Um, Well, because many of us, uh, many economists and other analysts, including me, thought that one of the negative economic impacts of Brexit would be that the end of free movement would choke off um, workers coming to the UK um, from the European Union, which we knew had broadly had positive economic impacts on the UK. and that that would do a significant amount of damage. Um, In practice, however, what happened was that the government, um, whether deliberately or inadvertently, actually liberalized the immigration system after Brexit. That is, it counterbalanced the end of free movement with a more liberal approach to um, people coming from outside the EU. Um, And that has, in numbers terms, more than made up um, for the losses, uh, the the reduction which we have seen in Europeans. So overall, um, the UK labour market hasn't suffered nearly as much as we would have expected from the end of free movement and indeed in some respects has gained from this liberalisation. So overall, in terms of the impact on the economy and labour markets, um, rather than being significantly negative, um, the impact of Brexit appears to have been, um, in immigration terms, perhaps something on the positive side, particularly since many of the workers who are coming under the new system are middle and high skilled workers at middle and high wages, um, as well as quite a number of people coming in the health and social care system. Now, the latter, I have to say, is not an unalloyed benefit because what it has meant is that we have quite a lot of people coming to work in the um, social care system on relatively low wages because the government doesn't want to fund the system properly. Um, but that, in my view, is less of an immigration issue than a uh, government, uh, um, pol- the, the fact that government policy mm. on social care is a, yeah. is a disaster. So has the government actually then managed to create a more efficient migration system for the UK, whereby the right, quote unquote, people are coming for the labour force from outside of this country where they're needed? Um, There are trade-offs here. Free movement had a lot of advantages for the UK. Um, It was flexible, no bureaucracy, um, gave people um, full rights pretty much immediately um, on arriving if they were from Europe. Um, And that, from a sort of liberal economic point of view, um, was probably a, a good thing. So there are losses. But given Brexit and given that Brexit meant the end of free movement um, essentially uh, automatically, um, I think uh, the system we have now 
for work visas is pretty good. It compares well, certainly, to the systems adopted by most European countries, which are considerably more, in general, mm. restrictive, at least in practice, and uh, you know even more bureaucratic. Um, and so while our system is far from perfect, um, I think it, it does actually serve the UK economy reasonably well. Mm. The issue, though, um, surely, is that the economic arguments in, in many ways failed when it comes to Brexit. So do you think they're going to fail again on the immigration issue? Because we, we're talking in kind of narrowly economic um, terms, but, you know, there are uh, social concerns around migration that voters um, have. You know, some people might see that as prejudice, some people might not. Um, and now at a particular crunch point when we have the cost of living crisis so you know if those economic arguments failed with brexit are, are they failing on on the broader issue of immigration now well just as with brexit uh, it's perfectly reasonable to say that immigration is not just an economic question there are lots of other considerations that need to be uh, taken into account and it's perfectly legitimate for people to have different views on um, the, the level or nature of immigration. Um, what I would say, though, is that the uh, um, the idea in the media that there is a sort of strong majority, unified majority of people who just want fewer migrants is simply not supported by the data. Um, my colleague Rob Ford has done a lot of work on this. People's views on immigration are quite complicated and nuanced and different people come at it from different perspectives. Of course, there is a core of quite simply racist prejudice, and you have some people um, in the Conservative Party, in the government, and uh, sadly even in academia, who appeal to the purely xenophobic and racist uh, um, motivations against immigration. But that is a minority of the population, it's a minority of those who are concerned on immigration. In fact, what you get if you look at the data is, first of all, that overall attitudes towards immigration have becoming considerably more positive over the last decade, and indeed, particularly since Brexit, for a variety of reasons. And second, that people actually care less about the overall numbers than they do about who's coming here and why. And people are generally quite relaxed about most of the people who are coming here. They are relaxed about students who come here to study in our universities, um, and they're quite happy to see people come and to, to work in the NHS and care systems um, and in other jobs um, where there is demand. Um, so overall, I think the focus on numbers and on a small minority of people who just want fewer immigrants for, for fairly unsavory reasons is rather misplaced. Um, most people are in a much more nuanced position. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, uh, politics and the media doesn't necessarily uh, reflect that, but I think we should try and get the debate back to that, away from the headline numbers and more to what sort of system do we want. Jonathan, can you help us understand then how we should be looking at this, I suppose, statistically at this issue as well? Because the net migration figures aren't necessarily a very good guide either. Those latest numbers and the past recent sets of them have been largely affected by the big numbers coming, for example, from Ukraine or from Hong Kong under specific situations. Are we not paying attention to the right numbers? How should we be measuring migration in a way that, I suppose, is is perhaps clearer when it comes to the, the benefits or, or, or costs thereof? 
Well, it is indeed extremely difficult, confusing, and and uh, I do not blame anybody for being confused by the numbers because they are extremely complicated. They change a lot, and the way we measure them is uh, um, is is quite unreliable. Um, what I would say, though, it makes much more sense to focus on individual categories and look at what's happening there. So, for example, we have had a very large increase in the number of uh, international students. Um, international, particularly since the pandemic ended. Now, international students come, count as migrants when they come in. They also count um, as emigrants uh, against the net migration numbers when they leave. So, of course, the timing of these rises and falls affects the headline figures. And what's happened in the last couple of years is the number of coming in has gone up, but the number leaving hasn't gone up gone. Uh, up as fast because of course it takes time um so you have that sort of thing but you know that doesn't mean that we should ignore the international student numbers but it means that we should look at them in context the, the context here of course is that the uk higher education system is very dependent on international students it benefits a lot from them both intellectually but also financially um mm -hmm. and there are pros and cons of that. We should be honest about that. You know, my university kings, like the sector as well, benefit hugely from international students in all sorts of ways, including financially. On the other hand, there are also dangers in that dependence and there are risks with a system where effectively we and other universities are using money from international students to cross-subsidize research and British students. That's potentially quite unstable. So, you know, we could talk all day about that particular aspect of the system. It's not the headline numbers that matter. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be worried that there aren't issues there. There are genuine issues. There are genuine pros and cons and difficult trade-offs to be made. And I could okay. say the same about work visas for people coming here to work in the NHS, people coming here to work in social care, um, people who come here to uh, um, work in uh, um, the banking, finance and ICT sectors as well. Okay, but is that really the conversation that is going on in the Conservative Party? I mean, okay, there's been one perhaps step forward that so there's at least a minister now in charge of legal versus illegal, as the, the uh, as um, the Conservatives dub it, migration. So you know, there's because there are two separate issues with those things, isn't it? And the focus as we go into next week, we'll be on the Rwanda policy, which is around boats and, and illegal migrants are coming into the UK. I mean, if the government wants to deliver what many Conservative governments have talked about, you know, much lower migration, how easy is it actually to deliver that? And if it's not the Rwanda policy, what is it? Um, well, let me start with the first half of, of the point you made there, which is you're right. There is a distinction between legal migration and refugees and asylum seekers who often come irregularly. Um, and the government now has separate ministers for the two. Um, but I think the media has some responsibility here too, not blaming you, but I was listening to the Today, today program today um, um, where Amal Rajan interviewed the minister for legal migration, Tom Persglow, just appointed, and spent almost the entire segment grilling him about Rwanda, because that is what SW1, Whitehall, Westminster political correspondents are obsessed with. Um, and spend well, it's, it's also something time. that's causing a lot of ructions in the Conservative Party, too. So yes, in, 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 def I, in defense of the profession, they are talking about uh, issues that are big in the potential future leadership of the country. But I take your point. Well, I mean, they're big in um, in Whitehall and Westminster, but you have a minister who's responsible for legal migration and you spend the time talking about 
Whitehall, you know, Westminster political gossip, frankly, not even about the merits of the policy that much, but just about who would support Rishi Sunak and who wouldn't. Um, instead of say asking the sort of questions you just asked me about um, legal migration, and I do think that actually the media has some responsibility there. Um, and I thought it was a pretty okay. poor so, performance. But okay, let me well, come let's on to stick the to the data. Yes, question. stick to the data. Go on. <laughs> let me come on to the second part of your question, which is about uh, um, you know what what. Uh, uh, well, I mean, I think I would sort of dispute the premise and I don't think when it comes to legal migration, particularly for legal migration for work purposes, the government should have a particularly strong view about numbers as opposed to getting the system right. Um, so as to, to take the single largest category at the moment, the number of people who are coming in to work in the social care sector, um, I would say this is not a, about migration policy. It's about policy towards social care. The answer to solving, quote, unquote, this to the extent it's a problem, and it is a problem, it's a problem of the social care funding and workforce uh, system, um, is to pay social workers better, train them better, treat them better. Um, and as a consequence, migration come down, which would come down because you'd need you'd need fewer workers from abroad in that sector. But that shouldn't be a particular policy objective or concern. The concern should be that we actually have a social care system that is staffed by people who are paid well and trained well. Um, that should be the objective, not numbers. Similarly, to take the other end of the spectrum, the higher education system, um, I, you know, and here I'm talking not about students, but about people employed in the higher education system, um, it would be absolutely insane to say, oh, we want to see, you know, British people take up jobs in the higher education sector at the expense, you know, in order to reduce the migration numbers. Um, in fact, one of the reasons the higher education sector has been able to expand so fast in the last 10 years in the UK is because we've been able to hire people from uh, both Europe and, and beyond, uh, you know, um, I have not suffered in terms of my job prospects from the fact that we have lots of people from abroad working in my department in my university. It helps grow the sector and make it more prosperous. So having a sort of objective of reducing the numbers would actually hurt the expansion of the sector and hurt the British economy. And again, that would be mad. The point is to have a system which is fair, which supports the economy, recognizes the broader issues around migration. It should not be about having targets about increasing or reducing numbers. So why is it then that politics for a decade at least seems to be obsessed with this issue and obsessed with the numbers either being at a certain level or the trajectory that they're on or whether it's up or down? If the argument, as you put it, and, and it, you put it very well, is so clear, why is the policy not matching that? Um, well, I mean, in, in some sense, of course, the, in some respects, the policy has matched it. As I just said, you know, I'm, uh, there's lots wrong with the current British immigration system, but the, the, the work feature system is working OK and better than many of our competitors, precisely because it doesn't actually have a numbers target. The numbers stuff is political rhetoric mostly rather than actual policy but going back i mean this dates to uh, um um david cameron's foolish decision um based on no analysis whatsoever to set a target to reduce migration to the tens of thousands which he did because he thought it would uh, win him a few votes now um when he took office 
not long after he took office, when I was still the chief economist at the cabinet office, I wrote him a note saying, this is a um, not just a stupid policy economically, but because you won't be able to deliver it without either without crashing the economy to reduce migration or doing some other very stupid things, um, you know, you're making a rod for your own back here. Um, he uh, he ignored me, um, and it didn't do his in the long run, of course, uh, because it in part led to the Brexit referendum in his uh, at the end of his career. Uh, or at least his first career, um, it didn't do him any good at all. Um, but uh, the, you know, the short answer is he should have listened. Well, yes, uh, uh, and a term in office, of course, as prime minister. Um, having said that, um, a last thought. Uh, in terms of the numbers, actually, you and others are saying that the ONS data actually may be at the point, so at the peak at the moment, and that they may come down themselves for various reasons, which sort of brings into view this idea that maybe the Labour Party could end up in power if they were to win power next year and actually have migration numbers fall, which would sort of perhaps take the biscuit in this argument, wouldn't it? Well, that would be ironic. I mean, I think, you know, um, it is very difficult to forecast migration numbers. And of course, you know, things could change in terms of the economy or geopolitical shocks. But certainly on the central scenario, I don't know any remotely serious analyst of the numbers who don't who doesn't think that they are now on a downward trajectory, simply for the arithmetic reasons that we discussed before. You know, we are no longer seeing large refugee flows from Ukraine. Um, and then, um, as I said, the, the a large influx of international students almost mechanically results in a significant, um, not one for one, but significant increase in, in people leaving some years later. So for those reasons, the numbers will come down um, regardless. Yes. Okay. Um, so uh, uh, it would be very surprising if we didn't see migration fall, regardless of who's in government over a one to three year time frame. Um, and yes, it, it would be, I guess, ironic if Labour is in power. But I don't think that, you know, um, that may generate some positive headlines for them, I don't know, or, um, and there will doubtless be, again, some you know, rather unedifying political back and forth about who's, quote, responsible, unquote. But I think, okay. you know, the real test for Labour, of course, is, is actually uh, um, coming up with a, um, an approach to migration, which is both economically sensible and politically viable. And that, that's one that the a test of the Conservative government has failed, um, but it won't be an easy test for Labour either. Okay, and we will ask you back to discuss that when they announce that policy. Jonathan Port is Professor of Economics at King's College London and Senior Fellow at UK in a Changing Europe. Thank you for joining us. Next, to another big government policy, this time from last year. A package of measures that was hailed as a way to supercharge the UK's financial services industry. Now, here is what the then City Minister, Andrew Griffith, told us about the plan a year ago. They're being called the Edinburgh reforms and they're a very ambitious set of reforms to seize on our Brexit freedoms, to deliver a smarter regulatory regime, one that's right for the, the circumstances we find ourselves in now and that work in the interests of all the British people across the country. 
Well, that was the then City Minister, Andrew Griffith. But now the Treasury Select Committee has said that those Edinburgh reforms are, quote, a damp squib and that they've had little impact on the economy. Our reporter Tom Rees is here with more on this. Firstly, just remind us of what this whole package, this so-called Edinburgh reform package, was actually all about. So, yeah, the, these were a set of reforms that were supposed to breathe new life uh, you know, into the city. After Brexit, we had a load of negative um, headlines about the city, you know, whether it's you know losing the you know the share trading crown to Amsterdam or you know about job losses though they were never quite as big as people predicted. Um, so it was initially dubbed Big Bang 2.0 um, after the Big Bang we had in the 1980s under the Thatcher government, which really propelled um, the UK's financial services uh, sector. Um, and it's, it's basically reforms uh, about 31 reforms, um, things like changing the ring fencing rules, which um, you know separate retail and investment banking um, units, uh, changing the senior managers regime, which um, basically holds uh, bankers personally responsible for rule breaking on their watch. It's uh, lots of little things like that to uh, help the city along. So what has the Treasury Select Committee said about these reports, that, or these reforms rather, in their assessment? So it's quite a damning assessment. As you said, they've called it a damp squib that's had little impact on the economy. The Treasury says about 22 of the 31 reforms have been delivered. The Treasury Committee kind of questions that. They say some of them haven't really been delivered. Some of them shouldn't really even be considered reforms. Um, Harriet Baldwin, who chairs um, this um, backbencher group of uh, MPs, um, she says it's right to do the reforms, but is a little bit underwhelmed by them. Hmm. What's the government response then? Um, So we actually spoke to um, the city minister, um, Bim Afalame, um, yesterday, and he said, uh, you know, look, we're only a year in. And to be honest, he's only just got into the job um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, the city's very complex, um, have some patience, and the economic effects of these reforms will come eventually. But in the meantime, I'm going to try and deliver the rest, is, is what he's told us. How important are the issues contained in these reforms for the financial industry, and also for the government that puts so much weight on announcing them? Yeah, so, so some of the stuff at the margin might help the city, but I can't say it's something that's actually brought up by the very people it's supposed to help that often. You know, in the context of Brexit, you know, these these reforms don't do a whole lot to offset um, a lot of the damage done by losing quite a bit of that access to the EU market. Um, what they probably really would like, you know, people in the city, is some equivalence deals from the EU, you know, granting better better access to the, those markets. And I, I, I think the fact that the Treasury are having to remind everyone that it's a year since those reforms actually took place says quite a, quite a lot. I think I very much doubt that, you know, a year after the Thatcher government delivered the first big bang, they were having to remind people of uh, that, those, those reforms. Oh, yeah, indeed. What does that mean then for the Labour um, potential government, potential plans in terms of trying to help, you know, the City of London? And there still does seem to be this... Um, conflict about how big the City of London and financial services should actually be. I mean, it is quite a sizable chunk of the UK economy. There's still a debate, really, about how hard to back the services racehorse, as it were. I mean, especially since you could argue that, I mean, the UK has been a particularly bad performer, economic performer, since the financial crisis. And I think part of the of that is because we have an outsized financial services sector that was hit very hard by the, the financial crisis. But I, I think what you hear from Labour, I mean, they haven't set out like a specific 
counter plan um, to these reforms. But what what you hear from Labour is that they have embraced the city, um, but and they are a lot more friendly, especially compared to the previous Labour leadership under J- Jeremy Corbyn. They've in, they they have welcomed some of the reforms um, taken by the Conservative government, but they've also kind of taken with the with the other hand. You know, they, they've talked about clamp down tax clamps down on you know private equity, um, taking away uh, non dom status that that sort of thing. So it's it's a more balanced approach from them definitely. But I mean, speaking to Labour advisers, um, you know, Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves, uh, Shadow Business Secretary Johnny Reynolds, they're constantly non-stop going around the city doing breakfasts and dinners you know people have dubbed that the kind of prawn cocktail offensive um and you know only only yesterday they um announced a new panel of kind of city grandees that will that will advise them you know going another into, one and another one yes um and you know that includes people like douglas flint who's chair of uh, aberdeen and john kingman who's chair of lng so it's a different feel to what what we got under Corbyn, and it seems like the city maybe anticipating that Labour will be in the next government are kind of embracing Labour as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's not just, I mean, it's going to be a long running issue, isn't it? If those relationships need to last through a next administration, who knows? Yeah, certainly interesting one to watch. Tom Reese, our UK economy reporter, thanks very much for joining us. That is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock. Our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more on Monday. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.